Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Thinking about it, she's like, you can't do that to somebody. Like some of the names in here are tough to pronounce. Worried about somebody butchering them. If you've ever read this before, you just make stuff up when you go along. In the, it was the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon declared war on Jerusalem and besieged the city. The master handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the furnishings from the temple of God. Nebuchadnezzar took king and furnishings to the country of Babylon, the ancient Shinar. He put the furnishings in the sacred treasury. The king told Ashpenaz, head of the palace staff, to get some Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men who were healthy and handsome, intelligent and well-educated, good prospects for leadership positions in the government, perfect specimens. I love that part there. And indoctrinate them in the Babylonian language and the lore of magic and fortune-telling. The king then ordered that they be served from the same menu as the royal table, the best food, the finest wine. After three years of training, they would be given position in the, positions in the king's court. Four young men from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were among those selected. The head of the palace staff gave them Babylonian names. Daniel was named Belteshazzar, Hananiah was named Shadrach, Mishael was named Meshach, Azariah was named Abednego. But Daniel determined that he would not defile himself by eating the king's food or drinking his wine. So he asked the head of the palace staff to exempt him from the royal diet. The head of the palace staff, by God's grace, liked Daniel, but he warned him, I'm afraid of what my master the king will do. He is the one who has signed this diet, and if he sees that you are not as healthy as the rest, he'll have my head. But Daniel appealed to a steward who had been assigned by the head of the palace staff to be in charge of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Try us out for 10 days on a simple diet of vegetables and water, not the cake that you saw in front of you. Then compare us with the young men who eat from the royal menu. Make your decision on the basis of what you see. The steward agreed to do it and fed them vegetables and water for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked better and more robust than all the others who had been eating from the royal menu. Not a surprise. So the steward continued to exempt them from the royal menu of food and drink and serve them only vegetables. God gave these four young men knowledge and skill in both books and life. In addition, Daniel was gifted in understanding all sorts of visions and dreams. At the end of the time set by the king for their training, the head of the royal staff brought them into Nebuchadnezzar. When the king interviewed them, he found them far superior to all the other young men. None were a match for Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they took their place in the king's service. Whenever the king consulted them on anything, on books or on life, He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his kingdom put together. Daniel continued in the king's service until the first year in the reign of King Cyrus. It's the first chapter. This is is God's word for us today. The title of this series is True Grit. True Grit. A stand-up man in a bow-down world. Right, you hear like, like the music, like right in the background, you're waiting for that. That's the tagline for this series. True grit. You ready for this journey? Well, let's just start in prayer. Lord, Lord, I thank you for this book that was written thousands of years ago. Father, the problem as I faced as, a, as the preacher today is that I think so many people are familiar with this story. Lord, I ask that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to see you speaking a 2015 message to us. That your word is applicable, Lord. It it can slice, it can dice, Lord. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, may that be the case today. You are the great physician. I ask that you would go inside and you you would transform us, Lord. Transform us from the inside out. Make your word come alive in a new way for all of us. 
May we say, you know what? I may have read it a thousand times, but this is a new day. Father, speak to us from your word with what you're doing in this hour. How does this book affect us today? Spirit of the living God, have your way in this place. Move on us. As we even heard in music, we just felt your presence as it was ushered in. Lord, I ask that that would just continue here. And this would be a holy moment for all of us. A moment of searching, a moment of contemplation, a moment of meditation and rumination. May it be, Lord Jesus. Amen. How many fans in here, uh, how many fans we have in here of psychology, experiments, sociology? Anybody? You enjoy, when maybe when you went to school, you uh, enjoyed, maybe you took a psych class in high school or college, you took a sociology class, an anthropology class. Well, being a sociology teacher, it's so interesting how we can understand human nature and looking at various seminal experience, ex- experiments from the past. I want to talk about two of them this morning very briefly as we get into this story. You ready? The first one is an experiment that took place in the 1950s. And the experiment was done by a guy named Solomon Ash. And Solomon Ash was conducting an experiment on conformity. And here's what he did. He had eight people come into a room. One person in the experiment was the subject. By subject, I mean they didn't know what was going on. The other seven people that were brought into a room, they were, they were put around this table. They knew what the experimenter was doing. And here's what the experimenter would do. They would be shown pictures Now, they would be prepped. The seven out of eight people would be prepped in the beginning, and they would be asked, okay, which line on, I'm looking, my right corresponds in length to the line on the left? All right, class, which line is it? You tell me. Which one is it? Two. Two. All right. Okay, I don't hear that many of you saying two, but all right, two. So that would be the first one. He would go through a couple of these, right? But the students on purpose, seven out of eight people, they get the first one right, Then on the next two, they would get them wrong on purpose. Now, there's one person in the room. You are the subject. You don't know that the other people, you know, have already been privy to this information, that they know, that they've been told what's really happening here, right? So we wanted to see. And what was so interesting about his results in looking at conformity, 75% of the people that took part in this experiment gave the wrong answer at least one time. 75%. Which means you, your mind is telling you. Now, I wanted to do this like in church. You wouldn't believe how I do this in school. I can say, you can't do this in church. Are you kidding me? Somebody walks in, you're going to embarrass them. You, I'm like, really? This would be the all-time experiment to do this on a Sunday morning sermon. How many of you wish I did this experiment, right? You wish I did it. I do it with kids. It's funny. At school, I'll send them out. Suzanne, right? Like I did it this, I, I did it like last week. And I'll send like students, can you go to Mrs. Haas's room? And uh, I, she needs this. I don't know what she wants it for. Kid leaves the room and I prep the whole class. So it's like 30 kids in the room. I'm like, here's what we're going to do. And I show them. The kid comes back in and I'm like talking about whatever. And then I get into the whole experiment and the kid like, like kid's like, what? That's not two. It's three. But invariably at some point, the kid's like, I, I guess I don't see it that way. I'm like, do you wear glasses? Do you not see that well? Really? You can't see this, that everybody else sees that it's three? Conformity, conformity, right? That's number one. That's experiment number one. Now, experiment number two is more famous. This was done in the 1960s. How many of you know the name Stanley Milgram? Did you hear that name, Stanley Milgram, right? Stanley Milgram is called the Milgram experiment, very famous. He was a psychologist at Yale University. And here's what he did. He wanted to see, he was like looking to study The Nazi officials, World War II, their defense was, we were just following orders. So he wanted to test obedience to authority, similar to the experiment I just told you about. And this is what he did. He brought people into a room. If you were part of this experiment, he put you in front of this huge apparatus that, like, it had these shock levels on it, these little, like, levers. And you were told to sit down on this chair, and you were going to administer an exam to somebody who was in the room next to you. And they were hooked up like they were going to get shocked if they didn't get answers correct on the exam that you were going to administer. Now, same thing. This person is the subject that is sitting in the chair. Now, the the switchboard that they saw in front of them was labeled in 15-volt increments from 15 volts all the way down to 450 volts. Right? Sound like fun? They didn't know the person in the other room was an actor. So the person in the other room is an actor. They start the exam on purpose. The the person is getting questions wrong. 
I'm sorry, that answer is wrong. There would be somebody behind the individual that had a white lab coat on, and that individual would say, you must continue with this experiment. It is of the utmost importance that you continue with this. 67% of the people that took part in the experiment went all the way to 450 volts. 67%. Shocked by his findings. He couldn't believe it. And I know what you're thinking sitting in here. I'd love to replicate this too. It's unethical. I can't do this in school. But I would love to do this. And I know many of you are saying to yourselves, there's no way I would do that. I hear some guy screaming in the other room. that The actor would actually pretend to be passed out. And the people are still like flipping the switches. There you go. All right. Here, let me inflict some more pain on you. These experiments, why do I bring these up? Why am I starting the series out this way? Because we live in a world where it is so easy to conform to what society tells us to do. It is so easy for us to take what the world tells us. You know what? And listen, don't get me wrong. You may say, and, and, and don't come up to me afterwards and say, isn't conformity good? Yes, conformity is good. What would the world be like if people didn't obey motor vehicle laws and, and the such? There, conformity to an extent is good. But when we, as a people, are not cognizant and aware of the ways in which the culture we live in is trying to take us away out to sea, we're not, again, we're not aware of it. We need to be a people that wake up to what is actually going on around us. It's not a time to be sleepwalking. This book is, this book is, it's for today. I don't know how you can look at this book and this series and say, this is not a timely series. Oh, this is timely. Because there are individuals, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You have individuals and others who are given a choice. They're brought into a brand new culture. And they were told to assimilate into that culture. You are to acquiesce. You are to conform. You are to be like everybody else in Babylonian society. And if you don't, oh, you better watch out. You've heard of hands-off leadership before, Nebuchadnezzar is heads-off leadership, right? You don't do what Nebuchadnezzar wants, off with your head. He's going to take you out. So this is the story in which you are entering this morning. And I want to start here by giving you a little background. Can I give you some history and set the context? Because otherwise you don't really get the full magnitude of what is going on and how it really pertains to us today. And uh, let me go. I'm not doing that. All right, here we go. This is a chart here for you to see. This book is known as exilic literature. And exilic is just a fancy word. Think of the the exiles, the, the time that they were exiled and they were sent away, the time they were taken away from Jerusalem. Now, this is one of those books. Daniel would have been a, he was a contemporary with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. All right, Jeremiah, you know the books in the Bible, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, also Esther. Now, when Daniel is taken from Jerusalem in 605 AD and he is brought to Babylon, you have Jeremiah and you have Ezekiel who would have been back home in Judah. And I'll get to that in a second. But the big thing you need to understand This is the story of how God's people, you look at Israel's history, this is the story of how God's people have fallen away, right? Time and time again, they fall away. The promise, before the promised land, when they're with Pharaoh, they eventually later on make their way into the promised land. It's they come back, apostasy, they fall away, they come back, they fall away. It's the story, it's this vicious cycle that takes place in the history and the story of the Israelites. So, here is... The picture, and I want you to see, I'm going to leave this up for a second. I want you to see, and I didn't even, you know, study. It's amazing what you learn when you study something, right? How many of you know what I'm talking about? You're going to teach it? I always thought Nebuchadnezzar went to uh, Jerusalem twice. He actually went there three times. And the first time you're going to see it, again, I have to lay the, you have to stay with me. I have to lay the groundwork for this. The first time we see him is in 605 B.C., That is when Daniel and others, roughly 10,000 people, will be taken from the land known as Judah, Jerusalem, and they're going to be taken to Babylon. He will also come in two other times, and I bet a lot of you probably didn't know that. And it was interesting, reading commentaries and listening to what scholars had to say, it's pretty fascinating, and I'll, I'll get to more of that in a second. 
Now, there is a, I don't know, an artist's rendering of King Nebuchadnezzar. You probably all heard the name before. If you went to Sunday school, you definitely heard some stories from this book. This is the trek. It was a 700-mile trek to get from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon. I want you to think about that, and I want you to look at the arid geography. They're crossing a desert. A desert! So to go 700 miles... This was not an easy trip. This was not an easy journey for Daniel and the other individuals that were taken in that first sweep in 605 BC. Nebuchadnezzar ultimately will come, as I said before. He'll come in 597 and then the one that you probably know in 587 when he raises Israel to the ground. Torches everything, destroys the temple. That's a pivotal moment. Now... I want you to understand this at the outset of our series and giving you the history and background centuries prior to this story centuries prior to this you had two kingdoms the kingdom was divided the kingdom of Israel was divided and it was split into Israel and Judah at this time listen at this time when Daniel is written Israel has already been taken over. Judah has not. So Judah is the southern kingdom. This is where Jerusalem is. Are you with me? Just let me know you're with me as I'm giving you the background on history. So Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. This is where Nebuchadnezzar is coming. Centuries prior, the kingdom was split. Gives you a little, I could, I could give you a lot more, but I know I'd really put you to sleep if I did. So when he defeats them the first time, right, he takes 10,000 people back to Babylon with him. Who are these 10,000 people? That King Nebuchadnezzar, the story we're looking at, Daniel is one of them, 605 BC. Who are the 10,000 people? They are the best and the brightest. The creme de la creme. He looked at SAT scores. He looked at GPA averages. He said, I want the best in, in terms of your culture and government, in the arts, in education, in politics. Those are the individuals I want. I want the affluent And I want those that have influence in Israeli society. So this is a really cagey move when you think about that. What do most people do? You come in and you take over. What do people usually do? You you know a little bit about history. Come on, what what do rulers usually do? They destroy everything. Everyone, women, children, everyone gets destroyed. This is a cagey move by Nebuchadnezzar. Instead of doing that, he is saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take your best and brightest. Now, Babylon is a polytheistic pagan culture. What do we know about Israel at this time? It's monotheistic, polytheistic, right? Many gods in Israel, one God. He is going to take these, he's going to take these Jewish people, the 10,000, and he's going to indoctrinate them. He's going to indoctrinate them, not destroy them. He's going to say, hey, listen, you're going to come in here. You're going to become intellectually, socially, religiously, every any way you look at it, you are going to become Babylonian in nature. You will become like us. We will assimilate you in to our society. Now, the last part of the history that I want to give you before I get into the real meat and give you life application, more so life application you must understand when they went, and this is, I'm, I'm listening to sermons and reading a lot. Not a lot of people talk about this, but I think this is like really one of the best parts of the story. When they first went in 605 BC, again, let me go back to the map for you. All right, so in 605, the first siege, Daniel and others are part of that 10,000 prominent people in society, right? They're taken on the 700 mile trek to Babylon. When that happened, Many of the individuals, when they went there, you know what they did? They settled right outside of Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah, who is back in Judah, he wasn't one of the ones taken. I don't know why. It's impossible to ascertain why that is. But he wasn't taken. And we know from what he wrote, there were false prophets that were telling the, Israel, the, the Jewish people as they were there, they said, you're not to go into Babylon, you're to camp outside of Babylon. And there's a guy, if you take notes, you look at it, because I'm only showing you one piece, there's just too much to cover in, in, in this kind of sermon. But if you look at Jeremiah 28, you go to Jeremiah 28, and you'll see a, a prophet by the name of Hananiah. And Hananiah is telling the Jewish people, the exiles, 
You are to camp outside of Babylon. You are not to go. It is a wicked city. You have been taken by Nebuchadnezzar. You are not to associate with these people. You are not to have anything to do with them. You are to pray that God destroys them. Right? With me? No, no, not amen. That's not good. Okay, that's all right. Because guess this is what happens. Jeremiah is the real prophet of God. And this is the message he has from Judah to Daniel. This is the, I mean, everything runs through this theme and thread in the whole book of Daniel. This is what he says in Jeremiah 29. He hears about this guy Hananiah and others that are telling the Jewish people, camp outside, don't go into the city. And he says, that is not God's word. Here is what God's word is. Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Did you catch that? Whom I have caused. The beginning of the book of Daniel. God gave King Jehoiakim over to King Nebuchadnezzar. Let that sink in for a second, okay? Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. Do you see the message, what he's saying? You're to go into the city. You are to be salt and light. You are not to sit on the outside in this wicked, pagan place. You're to get inside there and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. Did you hear that? Pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace, you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Already, you've heard the story a thousand times. You didn't know. This is the blueprint for Daniel's life. This is the message that Daniel would have gotten. His parents would have gotten. This is the message that he lives by. This is the blueprint for the rest of his days that he knows he is in Babylon. And guess what? He's supposed to be a difference maker. He's supposed to be a difference maker. It's not sit on the outside and just say, man, those people are really bad. I'm going to pray for them or I'm going to pray God does something. No, no. I'm going to be an agent of change. I'm going to go in and I'm actually going to do something about it. This is his master plan. And you got to love it because it's not what you would think. Build your houses, settle down, plant gardens, marry and have sons and daughters. He's saying, I want you to be so deeply involved in the life of the city. I want you to love those people in the city. What? You want me to love the Babylonians? They've come to, you know, they've come, they've raided us, they've pillaged, they've taken everything. And you want us to pray for them? You want us to care about them? Wow, that's kind of hard. Now, he says, you can love both God and you can love that city. You can love me and you can love that city. Now, can I take it to today? What do you hear? I think, what do we hear sometimes in, in, in churches? What do we hear? I think there are two different groups. I was thinking about it. And you have fundamentalism on one side, right? And I think fundamentalism is... We try to coerce people into following certain rules and doing certain things. And fundamentalists will tell us, man, you don't want to go out. Don't go out in the world. Man, the world's a bad place. You don't want to get wrapped up in things that are going outside in the world. Right? Right? You know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? That's one side. Then on the other side, you have mainline churches, right? You have churches that are saying, no, no, no. that's totally wrong. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to get into the world and you're supposed to minister to those people. You are supposed to assimilate. You're supposed to assimilate and kind of like show God off. That's how you're going to be a light to them. Assimilate into the culture. The only problem is too often the people that do that and the churches that propagate and espouse that idea, there's no difference between them and the secular world. You can't see a difference. Come on, why do you think certain places around, I I won't give you specific names, but it's not the true gospel, it's a false gospel. And it's people, it, it doesn't offend anybody and there's no cross, it's a crossless Christianity. Why do you think people are flocking? Oh, I can come in. Hey, everybody's accepted. Everybody is included here. Oh man, this and that, this law, this Supreme Court decision, that decision, come on. No, 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 no. It's, it's not this way, fundamentalism, 
And it's certainly not this that we just assimilate into the culture. And I know this is deeper than you. I'm not entertaining you this morning. I'm giving you the real history. I'm giving you the background. But I'm giving you, I think, what's important. There's a lot of tension for us. We have to be a people that are committed to living in this place for the flourishing of this place. Did you get that? We have to be a people that we live in this place. It's not, hey, we have the four walls and we kind of hang out in here and it's cool. And we sing happy birthday. It's your birthday. That's awesome. No, 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 no. It's you got to go outside. You have to get outside in the real world and understand something. In a sense, you feel like, well, we're not really for the world. No, no, you are. There are certain things that, yeah, we don't want to get involved in, but we're for the world because he's for the world. So it's not assimilate, it's not condemn, because so many churches are telling people, follow the rules, and that doesn't lead to transformation. It doesn't. There is a different way in the book of Daniel, and Daniel does it. You know what he does? He doesn't lose his identity. Because in essence, you may look at it, and you're going to go, well, he kind of does assimilate into Babylonian society. He does in a way, but he doesn't lose his identity of who he is. He doesn't lose his identity of who God is to him. Did you get that? That's the important piece you have to see in this. I could easily just go on and not say any of this and just and get into the, This is important. You have to understand for us as a people in 2015, that's how we are supposed to be. We are supposed to go out into the world and we are supposed to be different in the sense that we know what identifies us. We know what marks us. But if we're people and there's no difference between, between the way we live our lives and how people out there live their lives, how is that supposed to do anything for the gospel? Come on. And at times it may make us uncomfortable. At times we may need to take a stand. And that's why, how many of you have non-Christian friends? How many of you have friends that aren't Christians? You hang out with a lot of people that aren't Christians. I'm not happy to say this, and I know my wife has helped me immensely, I think, in this area. But years ago, even like 15, 20 years ago, it was, I'd always be like, you know what? I don't know how many non-Christian friends I want to have. Now I'm like, you know what? The more the better. And you come in contact with people that aren't Christians, and you know the pat answers sometimes that we have about Christianity? And you get in conversations, and people say things, and you're like, wow, you know what? That's actually a pretty good reason, maybe, why you don't go to church. And you hear other people like, I don't, this is why I'm not a Christian. And you're like, well, I guess Christians are kind of judgmental. I guess we can, in a sense, be hypocritical. And you hear people, what they have to say, and there are good reasons why sometimes people are not Christians. Right? All right. Now, look at this guy, Daniel. I want you to see something, too, which is, uh, this blows my mind. In verse 20, look at this in verse 20. And in all the matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. I want you to see that. This is crazy. This should kind of, like, like make you go, ooh, really? Are you reading this, and do you see what the text is saying? It's saying that he found them, these four guys, were ten times, I mean, much better, big difference, than all the magicians and astrologers. So what does that mean that he had to study in Babylonian culture? He's studying this. He is not losing his identity as a follower of Jehovah. He is not losing his identity. But this should also, we just finished a series on work. This should really help us stay awake. This should really give us, this should really help us in terms of our attitude at work. Are you kidding me? Look at this guy, goes into a foreign culture. He goes into Babylonian culture and he goes in and he's better than all these other people that have worked in the palace. They've been steeped in this tradition. This is what they were raised with. Better. Takes his job seriously. And you know what? At our jobs, we should be excellent. People should talk about us that we're excellent at what we do. Are you kidding me? This is what he does. He may not be happy about where he is. And Jerusalem is 700 miles back that way. But he is put in this position. And he's saying, you know what? I'm going to serve you, God. I don't understand everything. But I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to serve you no matter what. And now, with that, I I just thought that was an interesting piece. And then... I'm going to jump around a little bit. I wanted you to see again. I want you to understand this at the outset of the series. In the beginning of the chapter, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. He did it. 
all things work together for good for those who, are love, those who love God and are called according to his purpose, right? Is that really true? In the totality of things, God is sovereign. God is in control. God knows what he is doing. And it may look to you right now with your human eyes or your spiritual eyes that, man, God, what are you up to in this situation? But he knows who you are. He knows where you are. He knows exactly what's going on at work. He knows exactly what's going on at home. And at times, he does this to test us. And I would say to you, Daniel, as an old man, you see the picture right there as we get to it later in the series of him in the lion's den. You see that old man. If I said to him, Daniel, you're 90 years old. You know, would you go back and change everything? You can stay in Jerusalem. You can have that life that you thought you were going to live. We'll give you that life. Or would you, would you trade it? Or would you stay with how things turned out? I could tell you I'd bet my life on it. That guy, you can ask him one day. I guarantee you that guy would say he came to know God in a realer, truer way. And he was more transformed by the fact that he was in Babylon than when he was in Jerusalem. And that's, that goes for us too. We don't want pain. We don't want suffering. But that is the furnace in which God transforms us. That is the furnace in which he changes us. And he never expected this man. You know how old he is, by the way? Do I have any high school juniors and seniors? Do I have any high school juniors and seniors in the house? Right there. Right, raise your hand right there. I have a couple right here. Did you know that this, he is about... Every scholar says he's under the age of 20. I picture a high school junior, right? A high school junior, 16 years old. The whole world is ahead of him. What does the text tell us? He has no blemishes. He is flawless. He is good looking. He comes from a family that has means, a family that has a lot of social power. And he is smart. He has what we'll call today emotional intelligence. He has a high EI quotient, right? This guy has everything. You ever get, like, you see people and you're like, I have a student, right, in school right now. The kid is top 10 in his class. He's getting recruited for football by every school in the country. Hey, he, the male person can't even, the lady can't even fit the mail in the mailbox every single day. He's like, the kid, incredible humility. But I'm looking at this kid and I'm like, you can't make this up. This is crazy. Good looking kid, top 10 in his class. And he can go to really almost any school in, in the country. Football. That's the kind of kid Daniel is. Daniel is, except maybe Daniel's playing the violin or the saxophone too. Daniel can do it all. He's a three-sport athlete. He's a valedictorian. And he's good looking. All the girls love him. And you could say, when you look at his life, what would his life have been if he stayed in Jerusalem, as I mentioned before? What was ahead of him? What was ahead of him? He would go to a great school. He'd go to, I don't know, he'd go to some boarding school in Jerusalem, right? He'd go there. He'd get set for college. He'd eventually leave there. He'd get some great job. He'd get married. He'd have kids. He'd get the job would probably be something having to do with the temple since he came from, you know, a family that had influence in society. This is what he's leaving. And then, boom, one day he's probably doing his homework. He's chilling out, hanging out. And there's a knock on the door. His parents are home and it's the Babylonians. The captain of the guard walks in and says, you're on the list. Let's go. We don't, again, we need to use our imagination. This was a real 16-year-old kid that was uprooted from his home. Imagine that at 16 years old and taken to a world that you have no idea, you don't know anything about. Didn't know anything. That's who your Daniel is in this story. That's who this guy is. And then in 6 and 7, look, look what else he loses. Look at this. There's a, a picture I, I said to you before, his age. One of the ones I found online, and this is him like, no, I will not eat your gluten. I will eat your vegetables and your water. I'm like, you go, right? The gluten-free diet, I want to believe, was started by this guy. He's totally gluten-free. You should too. Just come on board. Jump. You're not going to, listen, you're not going to miss any of the gluten. You're not going to miss it. Vegetables, water, juice, get a juicer. All right. Six and seven. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the Enix gave na- new names. Gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Bendigo. Did you ever really sit there and think about this too? What, imagine somebody gave you a new name. You get a nickname? No, no. That name you knew before is gone. That name doesn't exist anymore. And you probably wouldn't know this just by reading this. Daniel, every name, all of these guys, their Hebrew names are very important. And they point back to Jehovah. 
Daniel, right? This is what it means. It means the Lord will be judge. Elohim. Mishael. Elohim. Azariah. Jehovah. All names. The, all names that have to do with God. This is a huge deal in the ancient world. It's still a big deal. Do you just like, care, like carelessly, I don't know, what do you want to name this kid? I don't really care. Let's just pick a name out of a book. No, you like give it. I hope you give it some thought. I hope you gave it some thought, right? I actually, I'm totally digressing, but this is kind of interesting. How many of you have ever uh, read a book, Freakonomics? Anybody? You ever read the book, Freakonomics? There's a chapter in there, What's in a Name? And it was a bestseller, right? Awesome. And they talk about, imagine parents. There were two kids. This is years ago, and, and one guy actually works for the NYPD. Name one kid winner and the other kid loser. Twins. Hey, the, the guy loser, like he did really well for himself. Winner did not. Winner's in jail. Loser goes by the name Lou now. But I mean, a fascinating book. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he works in the city. I don't remember the exact title, but he's NYPD. Interesting. But names, anyway, names are a huge deal. Do you think, this is something else I was thinking about a week. Do you think these guys sat around and never like called like, <laughs> hey, Bendigo? Do you think that, like, can't you, like, see them, like, sitting around, like, making fun of each other? Come on! They're, they're high school boys! They're juniors in high school! And Meshach. <laughs> and if I'm Meshach, I'm going, listen, I'm going, my name was Michelle, so this is kind of a step up. So, I, I don't know, you guys can make fun of me all you want, but this isn't a bad name. So these guys are sitting there. I, I, I put before you, I don't think there was a day in their lives when they didn't have to say these names that they did. I would think for the rest of their days when they were together, hey, Daniel, they didn't call him, hey, Belteshazzar. No, maybe when they were kidding around, but for the most part, it was, hey, Daniel, they didn't forget who they were. They didn't lose their identity. They remembered where God, where, where God started in their lives, and they said, you know what? This is who we are. Nothing is going to change that. They're in a whole new culture. This is crazy. They're changing their names. Other pieces to this. So they end up there, and I have to ask you. I wrote this down. I said, you know what? I have to ask everybody. What do you do when you end up in Babylon like this? What's your attitude when you end up in Babylon? What do I mean by that? What do you do when the marriage that started maybe many years ago isn't going the way that you thought it would? Anybody in, in here? You know, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but anybody, you know what I'm talking about. Or there's a job, you're, you're not finding vocational success. You have a job that you absolutely hate. Or maybe you were let go from your job. You're in Babylon right now. Maybe your finances, when you look in your bank account, you don't know what's going to happen. You have issues paying your mortgage. You have issues all over the place. You're in Babylon right now. And I would say to you, it is so important what our attitude is as we move forward. These are guys that were, again, I can't say it enough, uprooted from their lives. Everything they know is taken. Everything. And they're brought into a whole new world. And for the rest of this message, don't worry, I don't have too long. I want to talk about an attitude. What, what characteristics, I was talking to Pastor Linda about this. What kind of characteristics do we want? You hear people say all the time, you know, dare to be a Daniel. Anybody ever like, hear that song when you were young? Dare to be a Daniel? Yeah, that's good. Nobody, nobody, not one person, the only one that knows Dare to Be a Daniel. You know it, Dare to Be a Daniel, right? Yeah, I remember singing it over there at that old building over there that was infested with asbestos and other things, and they fed me gluten, and um, I'm still scarred about it, and uh, I'll be okay. But um, anyway, no one, no, none of you know that song. It was Dare to Be a Daniel, but you know, we like sing the song, Dare to Be a Daniel, and like, all right, how do I be a Daniel, all right? You left that part out. No one ever told me how to be a Daniel. I'm like, all right, so go on. How do we become a Daniel? Didn't hear anything about that. What about characteristics? What makes somebody an overcomer? Can I use that word? Did you know there is a principle in the Bible? And this is so important for us today. There's a principle. It's called the remnant principle. And the remnant principle is when you look at a given time in history, when people are, so, like, people are so assimilated into what the culture says and does, and they've fallen away, and God is not really on the radar, God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a little revival, and I'm going to pull a couple of people up, and I'm going to reshape, and I'm going to change society. And I put before you, that day is coming again in American culture. That day is going to come. Do you believe that? That ultimately is, God is looking for a remnant. He's looking for a few people. Will he find them here at City on a Hill Community Church? 
will he find a small group of individuals that will believe him and they will trust him. And they will say, oh man, we're going to trust you no matter what happens to us, no matter where we live, no matter what it looks like, God, we're going to trust you. And we have to be resilient. You know, there's a whole field in the social sciences that revolves around studying people who experience suffering, major trauma, you know, all different types of uh, crisis situations. They looked at people, POWs, from the Korean War, from the Vietnam War, the 52 hostages and the uh, Iran situation back in the, uh, oh God, what, 30, 40 years ago, however many years ago that is. And they looked at all those people in those situations. And it was interesting. As you would expect, a lot of the individuals that were in those situations, what did they do? They withered, their spirit just withered up and died. They looked at life and said, I have nothing left to live for. I have nothing left to live for here. They were not resilient people. They died. Their spirit withered up. But there was a group of individuals that actually enlarged their capacity to handle problems. And they were able to persist and endure to be creative and to be tenacious. Tenacious. And I would say when you look at Daniel, you are looking at one of the most spiritually resilient people in the whole Bible. Resilient. How resilient are you? When life doesn't turn out the way you want, how resilient are you? Look what he does in verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Can I tell you something? Again, if you take notes, this is the hinge point of the chapter. And I would say, this may be the hinge point of the whole entire book of Daniel. Why? Okay, let me tell you. Because up to this point, It is King Nebuchadnezzar in the beginning has decided. He has said, you know what? I'm going to go in and I'm going to besiege Jerusalem. He has decided and he has said, you know what? I have purposed that these individuals are going to be taken back with us to Babylon. He has purposed that they would study. They're going to go to school. They're going to go to school. They're going to go to prep school. They're going to Babylon U. And when they're put in there, they're going to study. Now you have to see here, everything changes We are not just victims of our circumstances. Daniel could have easily just went along with everything and said, look, this is what they want from me. But he purposed in his heart. And there are theories as to the food wasn't kosher, things that they weren't, a Jewish person was not supposed to eat. There's different reasons here. But the bottom line is he purposed in his heart that he was not going to eat this food. Are you kidding me what courage it took for this man to do that? This 16-year-old kid that he and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they're also not going to eat the fair? Wow. Because they know what is ultimately possibly going to happen to them. They're going to lose their lives. But he determined he would not defile himself. Wow. Resilient people. Number two, so I would say resilient people, they refuse, one, to let circumstances control their lives. They are not just victims. And I think so many people are like, man, it just ha- I can't believe this happened to me. Yeah, that happened to you, but let's get back up, get back in the race, and keep moving ahead. It doesn't mean it's the end of anything. I know what this is like, by the way, and I've, I've said this before, but I'll be very brief. I, as a sophomore in high school, so almost the age of these guys, my parents had the idea. I, I still don't even know how, to, how this all came about, I guess, with the Hales. You've heard the name before, Jane Hale. Some of you are new to the church. You're like, who is that spiritual mom to uh, my parents over the years? I guess her husband worked at the, at the school, and they were sending me to the Stony Brook School. I went to Longwood like my siblings did, and uh, I went for a visit there, and I'm like, oh, I, I, I guess this place seems all right. I'll never forget the day. It's a mid-October day, and Pastor Linda puts me in the car. We're driving to school. I am on crutches. I broke my ankle in football. So to make things, I mean, right? It's bad enough when you don't know, I don't know a soul. I know one guy in the admissions office and he's like a game show host, like the smiles, nicest guy in the world. I knew one individual from the school and I tried to run from him every time because it was kind of embarrassing as he would like see me. I'm, I'm all right. I got it. You know, you're in high school. You want to act like, you know, everything's cool, right? He wasn't letting me do that. So Pastor Linda drives me up like the driveway to the school. And I'm like, really? I have to, I really have to get out right now. So I'll never forget getting out. All my crutches going into a school. I, I, I probably said it to you. I fell my first day of school. It was wet outside. I go into the place where my class is. I don't even know where the heck I'm going, right? 
right up in the air on my back. <laughs> hey, how are you? Good to see you. Yeah, nice to see you. Nice to meet you. Yeah, I'm the new kid with the broken leg, right? And I'm writhing in pain, but I'm pretending like it's really not that bad. I'm on painkillers. Right? Tough, right? I'm pretty tough at the moment here. So I'm persisting, right? I'm trying to move ahead and persevere. I didn't know a soul. I didn't know anybody. Has anybody you ever experienced something like that? You went to a place, you didn't know anybody, you know what I'm talking about? This is not easy stuff. Again, I, I, and I say this a lot, I don't know how I made it out, but I did. Somehow I made it out of that place. Right? I somehow, by God's grace, I graduated from Stony Brook School. I didn't really help myself in many cases. And we'll keep that stuff close to the vest, certain things. Some of you don't know me that well, and you're like, Really? I was, without a doubt, one of the craziest kids to pass through Stony Brook. I'm not, and I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm absolutely being serious. So some of the pranks, and you meet people over the years, and I'm like, ooh, like I saw somebody recently. My, and this is how God works, right? How funny is it that I go to, our kid, my, Jameson, the oldest, goes to school with somebody that went to school with me at Stony Brook. So right away, I'm like, oh, what did, I, did, I, did I do something to this kid? And then I find out, right, am I making this up? I found out, oh my God, tells my brother that I saved his life. I didn't save his life. I didn't save anybody's life when I was there. This kid thinks I saved his life. I'm going to take it. I'll take that. I'm like, hey, how are you? I, I, I guess I did. Why am I, I don't know. So, but really, you know what I mean. I'm, I was just thinking about that as an example of what it must have, really, what it must have been like for these guys to just pick up and go to a place that they didn't know at all. And then finally, I would say the last thing about resilient people, they're committed to living in community. We have our small groups this week. If you're not in a small group, you really need to get in one. And you know, Daniel found this little small group with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's kind of what they are, right? They form their own little small group while they were in Babylon. Can you imagine the prayers and the stories that they would have that aren't even in the book of Daniel? Can you imagine things that took place? the times of prayer that they had, the times when they didn't know if they were going to live to see the next day. I imagine they have some amazing testimonies. But these guys stood and they said, we're going to stand, we're going to stay together no matter what happens. You know, but when you, when you go to Babylon, you won't survive out without community. You won't! If you're in Babylon right now, you will not make it. Julius Siegel, one of the primary researchers in, in reading on this topic, writes that few captives suffered more than Vice Admiral James Stockdale, who served, get this, 2,714 days as a POW in Vietnam. Did you get that? That's roughly nine years this guy served in Vietnam. On one occasion, his captors shackled his legs and arms and left him in the glaring sunshine Three blistering days while guards beat him repeatedly to keep him from sleeping. Three days. This really happened. An individual really went through this. After one beating, this is fascinating, Stockdale heard a towel snapping out in a code that the POWs had devised in a message that he would never forget. It was a couple of letters. It was G-B-U-S. God bless you, Stockdale. God bless you, Stockdale. And you know what? Siegel writes that Jim Stockdale said it saved his life. And Siegel wrote that for these POWs, the briefest experiences of community, of being connected, became literally a life or death deal. So I ask you, you know what the, what, what's so ironic to me? How come when community is so difficult, right? When things are so hard, and you look at the underground church movement in a place like China, how come when things are really difficult, people are so willing, they'll move heaven and earth to get into community? But oh, when things are good, like you have right now, 2015 American culture, you can come and go and do whatever you want. How come we don't join community? Don't you find that rather ironic? And I would say to you, if you are not in community and you're not sharing your life with other people, you need to take a look in the mirror. Because this book is saying it. Resilient people, all throughout the Bible, it says it. And we know from experience, you need to be a, we need to be a people that are actually living together, sharing life together. I know you're going to be tired on Wednesday night. You're going to be tired. You're probably not going to want to go, but you're going to miss out on a meeting and you're going to miss out on somebody else who's sharing something that probably is going to minister to you. Get to the, get to the Hill House this week. If you're not in a Hill House, get in one. Come on, join. What do you have to lose? What are you afraid of? People are actually going to get to know you? 
I'm worried what people are going to think, that they're going to judge you. Come on, this is where the rubber meets the road. Get down and dirty with some other people in the church. Stop just coming on Sunday and saying, yeah, this is my, I did my duty. I did my thing. How about actually, come on, take it a step. Take a step this year. Do what these guys did, how they persevered. They were resilient people, but they said, we need each other. We'll never make it alone. We can only make it together. With me? So as we close this first sermon... I'm asking that we as the people at City on a Hill Community Church, I ask you that you'd actually go and and read this story. Go read this story. Get ahead. Read chapter two, what we're going to be in next week. Read this story. Get into it and see what God is actually saying to you. Are you a resilient person? Is that something that you, you want God to work in you on? Is that something that you're looking, God, you know what? I'm really not that resilient. Are there things like we just talked about community? Maybe you're really not tied in. Is that an area you need to come up to the table and talk to God about? Hey, God, I realize the necessity of community. Whatever it is in your life, I ask that you would bring it up to the table. If you're in Babylon right now, and it's your marriage, it's your finances, it's your job, I ask that you would just bring that up to the table this morning. You wouldn't hold on to that. And you would realize in circumstances when things are tough, when things look down and things don't, it doesn't look like anything positive is going to happen, to realize that he is still on the throne and he still knows and he still cares. He has not forgotten who you are. So Lord, Lord, I thank you for this first chapter. I thank you for the characters that we just met. Lord, I ask that we would continue to unpack their story and how it relates to our story. Lord, may they enliven our faith. May they continue, Lord, to help us see that, yeah, you know what? We can actually do it. We can be like these individuals. We can be in the world, but not of the world. Father, help us to be a people that stand out. Lord, you're looking for a remnant again. You're looking for a people that will say yes in this hour. Lord, we want to be those people that say yes to you in every way. We want to be people that stand up to the culture. We want to be people that don't conform and don't give in think about our actions. We want to think about what we're doing with our finances. We want to think about what we're doing with our time. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.